Welcome to season two of Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me as we embark on another exciting season of interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. We've added 25 years to our lifespan in the last century through various public health innovations and medical discoveries. We haven't provided tools, though, to help us with those additional years in the most productive, fulfilling way. But now that we've extended the lifespan, our first priority should be to extend the health span. That is the part of our lives that we're adding and make it as healthy as possible. And we wanna do that by giving people tools needed to improve their health, inspire them to maintain healthy lifestyle choices. If we do that right, we'll enable older adults to remain vital, connected, and that they can continue to add value back to society. And of course, I really believe that Connected Health has a big part in that solution. In my latest book, The New Mobile Age, I address the growing crisis of a caring for our aging society, including the need for to better engage older individuals, providing them with opportunities to maintain a sense of purpose, social connections, and increased physical activity. We also need to overhaul caregiving, moving from our current one-to-one model to a one-to-many model, and we need to take care out of institutions like the hospital and the doctor's office and place it more centrally in the home. And it's really in that last context that our next guest joins us today. So naturally, in writing this book, I called on a number of experts, including Dr. Bruce Leff, who's a noted geriatrician innovative thinker, he's become a friend over the years, and he's been instrumental in advancing geriatrics as a leading field for the future of care, developing clinical practice guidelines and new approaches to implementing geriatrics care. He's director of the Center for Transformative Geriatric Research at Johns Hopkins. He's a pioneer in bringing the hospital into the home, and that is where our interests cross. His research interests explore not only where care takes place, but also how that care can impact quality of life and well-being, particularly for homebound older adults living with complex health concerns. He has a strong interest in health policy, holds a joint appointment in the Department of Health Policy and Management in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Bruce is also a health and aging policy fellow of the American Political Science Association and has served on multiple technical expert panels for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services examining geriatrics and healthcare. Bruce is a passionate advocate for high quality, person-centered care for older adults, and I know you'll find his perspective thought-provoking and insightful. So welcome uh, to the podcast, Bruce. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, This past fall, you kindly accepted my invitation to speak at an Aging and Technology Summit I was chairing and told the story of how your experience as a resident prompted you to ask, 20 years later, if acute medical illness can be effectively managed in a patient's home. Can you share that story for our listeners? Sure. So when I... 
trained in uh, general internal medicine, primary care internal medicine here in Baltimore at, um, at Hopkins. And in the second year of residency, all the general medicine fellows picked up a second clinic experience, a second ambulatory experience. Um, one of the, that, the, the ambulatory experience that I picked up was a home-based primary care practice. So at Hopkins, we've had since the late 70s a home-based primary care practice. It was started by one of my um, heroes and mentors, Dr. John Burton, who uh, in his ambulatory practice ex had the experience of seeing a number of older adults with functional impairment being brought to the clinic by ambulance, on stretcher, requiring several caregivers to get them into the office. And he thought, well, maybe we should start going out to folks' homes and seeing them in the home. So he started doing that and developed a formal program to do that. And over time, that was incorporated into the curriculum of our general medicine residents. So, you know, starting in July of 1988 or so, I started making house calls on a regular basis to older, functionally impaired um, adults who could not access our ambulatory clinics. And it was really a um, totally transforming experience for me after having spent my internship year, you know, going through multiple rotations in the intensive care unit and the cardiac intensive care unit and the general medicine wards. And what I found was that uh, for me, I thought seeing people in their homes just changed everything for me. So I, I knew that I, I had to up my game in terms of my communication skills. And I think I learned how to do better at taking a history. I know I learned how to do much better uh, at physical exams because the technology that is often relied upon in the hospital to augment exams was a bit further away. So unlike the hospital where you hear a heart murmur and order an echocardiogram relatively reflexively, you actually had to do a heart exam and figure out the murmur on your own in some cases. Uh, you had to think about whether every time someone had belly pain, whether you were going to get advanced imaging. So my, my physical exam skills really excelled as well. Um, but I think what really changed the most was probably uh, thinking more deeply about diagnostic approaches and development of care plans that were more relevant to people. Uh, because going out to their homes, you really got to see them in, in full bloom in terms of seeing them in their environment and seeing them in the context of social determinants of health and came very quickly to realize that, you know, plans that you might develop in a clinic setting would just not translate uh, into the home setting. And you saw how caregivers and patients interacted. You saw the importance of that key relationship. Uh, you saw how patients did or did not manage their medicines. So, you know, medication reconciliation, which is a high priority for healthcare today, you know, in many cases is science fiction until you actually see someone at the kitchen table with their medication bottles, or in some cases you see patients with a, a bowl on the kitchen table with all of their medicines dispensed into the bowl like a bowl of M&M's. So, you know, you can often learn a lot about how a patient will or will not be able to engage in care plans just by getting a very quick glance at them at home and seeing them in their environment and seeing how they actually function in that environment. So for me, seeing folks in their homes is really transforming experience and one that 
Uh, I still get to experience when I make house calls, and it's the kind of experience that I think about a lot when I'm attending on inpatient services and when I'm seeing people in the clinic uh, in terms of thinking how best to care for them. That's that's uh, I, I love those stories of, of uh, those inspirational moments in our in our uh, training in our in our uh, past. Now, of course, that that led to the creation of Hospital at Home, which you're famous for, uh, an innovative and highly successful model that's providing hospital level care in a patient's home as a full substitute for acute hospital care. Uh, tell us about Hospital at Home. How'd you get going? What are some of the obstacles? What are some of the lessons learned? Yeah, so the reason we got going on this, it actually grew out of our experience in our home-based primary care practice. So uh, there were a number of times, and there are basically two use cases here. So the first general use case is that there were many times when uh, in my house call practice, in my home-based primary care practice, where older adults would become acutely ill. They would develop community-acquired pneumonia. They would develop an exacerbation of heart failure. They would develop uh, an acute myocardial infarction. And they would utterly refuse to go to the hospital because they had had negative experiences there and did not want to repeat those. And those folks basically challenged us to provide acute care in the home. Uh, and we would usually sort of just muddle through that. Sometimes we would use oral medications in lieu of intravenous medications that we otherwise would have used in the hospital. Occasionally, we were able to string together some services, uh, although payment sometimes got in the way. Um, but the first use case, older adults um, refusing to go to the hospital when, in fact, maybe they should have been there. The other use case is the observation that I think many physicians make today, but I think um, I'll blow geriatrics horn just a little bit. I think geriatricians were a little bit on the leading edge of understanding that the acute care hospital, the typical acute care hospital, is not um, it's not always a safe environment for older adults and for adults in general. So, you know, the landmark studies done by Joe, your colleague, Troy Brennan at Harvard in, in the uh, 1990s, the Harvard Medical Practice Studies looked at, you know, tens of thousands of hospital stays doing record reviews and, you know, unearthed extraordinary data on the fact that hospitals were at some level, manifestly unsafe. And that research launched the hospital safety movement. Um, and I think as geriatricians, we recognize that older adults can be vulnerable in the hospital and often experience bad outcomes. So they develop a high, uh, there's a high incidence rate of acute delirium, which when I was in training was told that that's a temporary state, but I think there's a lot of good data now to suggest that acute delirium probably has long-term cognitive effects and may actually be in the causal pathway for dementia for some people. So very common and, and, very, uh, and very morbid event. Uh, older folks in you know, new environments when they have sensory impairments like difficulty with vision or difficulty hearing are more likely to fall in the hospital. They're more likely to develop pressure sores when they're confined to, to a hospital bed. They're more likely to develop muscle weakness when confined to bed. So, you know, the decision to hospitalize patients, when I'm sitting in the clinic, in my clinic, and someone comes in with an acute illness, and I sit, often sit there and wonder, should I send them to the hospital that will likely be able to cure their heart failure or other 
acute illness, but only to have that person be unable to leave the hospital and go to a nursing home because this person who is functioning at a level just above that, which might require more assistance, now becomes functionally more impaired and needs to go to a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility after the hospital stay. So again, we got interested in this because a lot of older people refuse and also the recognition that the hospital is not always the safest environment for older adults. Recognizing, you know, we're not, we're not Luddites. There are many people who, and who get admitted to the hospital for whom the hospital is exactly the right place, but it doesn't mean that the hospitals can't be made safer. And there's certainly been a lot of work done on that over the past few decades. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about alternatives to the standard model and to the standard paradigm that could result in better outcomes. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the kinds of barriers that we have seen to developing hospital at home, um, I would say that uh, the, the big major reasons are, um, number one, often when, when I talk with health system or hospital leadership about hospital at home, often um, one thing they'll come back with is they'll say, you know, how do we know this is as good? Is there much evidence for this model? And, you know, in the model itself, the idea is to take people who are on the verge of being admitted to the hospital, either sitting in the emergency room or if they're in a clinic setting or even at home, and they have a hospital at home qualifying condition. And we can talk about that in, in a bit if you want. Uh, and are deemed eligible for hospital at home from a medical and a social standpoint and who agree to be treated at home are taken home and they receive, you know, the services that they would otherwise have gotten in the hospital at the home. So they get physician and nursing visits. They get intravenous fluids and medicines if they need it. They could get uh, intravenous diuretics in the context of an acute heart failure exacerbation. They can get breathing treatments and oxygen therapy. Uh, they can get a home health aid if they need help with getting to the bathroom. And they just get their care at home instead of the hospital. And there is an incredibly robust evidence base for that. Uh, we've done studies here in the U.S. Others are doing more studies now. And most of the literature is actually in the international literature, in other countries, and the common thread across those countries is that those places have single-payer systems, and, you know, it shouldn't be um, uh, obscure why that would be the case, because you need a payment model that would actually encourage taking care of people in a lower-cost setting if you can provide high-quality care and safe care in the home. So, you know, if you look in the international literature, you'll see studies from the UK, from Italy, from Israel, from New Zealand, and a lot from Australia, all single-payer systems. And, you know, the theme in terms of results is very clear. You get better care outcomes, you get better quality outcomes, you get a very high level of satisfaction, and you get much lower costs for care that's provided at home. And in several meta-analyses, what you actually also see is actually a reduction in mortality. So there was a meta-analysis uh, from Gideon Kaplan from Australia a few years back, and he included over 60 randomized controlled trials in his meta-analysis and found, if I recall right, it was a 21% reduction in mortality at six months that's dead or alive 
at six months if you were taken care of at home rather than the hospital with a number needed to treat of 50, which is incredibly low. And if hospital at home were a drug instead of a health service delivery model, uh, you know, it would literally be a blockbuster drug. But I think we all know that implementing and disseminating and scaling health service interventions is much different than taking a drug to market or taking a device to market. So, um, uh, you know, evidence should not be a problem, although people will often come back with that. I think sometimes it's a bit of a smokescreen. I think a big issue in terms of getting the model into practice and getting it to scale is really an issue of, of health care leadership. Um, and I think that, uh, and, and I'd love to talk this through with you a bit. I don't, I'm not quite sure we've ever had the conversation. But, you know, at some level, um, a lot of what is done in health service delivery is so hardwired into the system that it's really hard to change. So even though a lot of health system executives and leaders understand that healthcare delivery has to change, they really don't know how to do it. And uh, there's this great video, you, if folks want to go on YouTube, just put into the search engine the term backward bicycle. So a guy had a engineers built him a bicycle that went backwards. That is, if you turn the handlebars to the left, the wheel went to the right. And it took him, he thought it would take him about two or three hours to learn how to do this because he understood he needed to do something different to stay upright. Uh, but it actually took him about eight months to do that. And he used it as a metaphor for the difference between understanding the need to change and actually being able to change some very hardwired habits and knowing how to do something different. And I think there's a lot of that now in healthcare, not all systems. There are clearly some very innovative systems out there that are working on a hospital at home and other things. Hospital at home obviously not being the only interesting innovation that could help with um, some of the challenges facing the health system. But I think there's a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of barriers in terms of leadership and real true ability to change health service delivery. I think another big, big issue is payment. So, you know, we're geriatricians, we live in a Medicare world, and currently there's no mechanism in the fee-for-service Medicare system to change, to, to get hospital-at-home care reimbursed. So in Medicare fee-for-service, the hospital admission is reimbursed on a DRG system, the diagnosis-related group system. The hospital gets a prospective payment based on the admission diagnosis and a level of severity, but that mechanism does not exist for hospital at home because under Medicare statute and rules, the home is not viewed as a hospital, a hospital at home stay is not viewed as a hospital stay. So there's no way to get paid for that in fee for service. So when you go to the hospital president whose book of business is mostly Medicare fee for service and you say, hey, why don't you start taking people out of your ED, take them home, you're going to have to pay to develop and implement this model, which is not always easy. And when you take those people home, you're not going to get paid, but you would have gotten paid if you had taken care of them in your bricks and mortar hospital that you've already invested a whole lot of fixed costs in. And, you know, they look at you a little strange when you come up with an argument like that. You know, that said, Hopkins gave us initial funding back in the 90s when we were doing our pilot work. But even after successful demonstrations and trials, we've not done hospital at home here in Baltimore since our early development work, and part of that is payment. Uh, Medicare also has a managed care side of it, so about 30% of Medicare is managed care. 
Medicare, so-called Medicare Advantage plans. And there is interest in hospital home among Medicare Advantage plans because those plans basically uh, are on a capitation. And when they can provide uh, high, when they can provide hospital care at a lower cost that's safe and effective, they can actually get benefit from that. And we've had some nice implementations of hospital at home in Medicare Advantage plans, especially integrated delivery systems. Um, so payment is the, is the second big thing. And I would say the third thing, which um, as we're thinking about how to scale the model is really coming to the fore, is the issue of the supply chain and logistics to support hospital at home at scale. So, you know, there's a very robust and hardened supply chain for acute care hospitals, right? You're in the hospital, you write an order for something, that medicine, that fluid, that ventilator, that piece of durable medical equipment, whatever it is, will get to the patient almost always in a pretty reasonable amount of time. There is a supply chain for post-acute care, so for skilled home health care. So if you're getting skilled home health care and you need a walker, it'll get to your house. It won't get there the next day, but it'll get there in a few days. Or a skilled nurse will be in your home within a few days. But currently, you know, if you're trying to provide hospital-level care in the home that is safe and effective, you need to operate on a very different timeline from typical skilled home health care. And you need to do that when you're not sitting in the building of the hospital. So the ability to develop hardened, redundant, safe logistics and supply chain for hospital at home is another significant barrier to scale. But there are um, there are folks now who are really looking at this and are really going to try and develop that supply chain. Uh, you know, we've had um, uh, interactions with, you know, companies like Amazon who are getting interested in this. And I think part of the reason, they, they play a very close hand, but I think part of the reason they're getting interested in this is because they have that ability to do that kind of supply. Why shouldn't I be able to uh, do a hospital-at-home case, be at someone's home, and figure I need to change an antibiotic and be able to order that, you know, order a gram of ceftriaxone with an IV pump and have that delivered by drone to someone's home within an hour, or have oxygen delivered within a half hour by drone. So, you know, I think those, those kinds of issues in you know, as technology develops, as uh, supply chain gets hardened for hospital home, we'll start to make things easier. But that's the other big, big barrier, I think. Uh, and they're, those are the ones we really bring to the front. Wow, that's a, that's a wonderful uh, expose for, uh, for listeners who are interested in this space and, and uh, just the, uh, the voice of experience. I really appreciated the, the way you broke it down. I'm, I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, technology. Uh, as uh, I'll just remind folks that uh, you were kind enough to be interviewed for my latest book, The New Mobile Age. And I think you, I, would, I would cast the interview as a, 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 a fair amount of skepticism on the role of technology. And, and uh, you've, you've included things like too much technology, in terms of mobile apps, sensors. And I would love to give you get your perspective on that, uh, since this is a podcast about the role of connected health and healthcare delivery. I don't think skeptical is is uh, too strong a word. Um, 
I do think technology can absolutely play a role. I think a lot of the technology that's probably most useful or that will be most useful for the care of older adults, whether it's in <clears throat> the context of hospital at home or uh, care more generally, just haven't yet um, really been developed. And I think part of it is... Um, Part of it maybe just be a lack of, of vision or trying to apply the use case of the way people typically use apps to healthcare, which is not always, those things just don't always transfer well. I think there's also an attitude among folks, say, who are really into developing uh, sensors and monitors that more information is by definition good and right. Uh, and it may, that may not always be um, the case. So, you know, I get um, a lot of emails and calls from folks who have developed a new sort of monitoring technology. And the, the pitch usually goes something uh, along the lines of, hey, Dr. Leff, we could, you know, we could get you every reading on this dimension every second of the day. We can measure it 10 times per second per day. And wouldn't that be great? And, you know, the answer to that is not always yes. I think that um, doctors uh, want useful information. I think they want the minimum amount of information that's going to actually influence a decision that needs to be made at a certain time. So they want dispositive information that influences care and a decision. And they don't want too much information that might force a premature decision or a bad decision. So, you know, the right information supplied at the right time linked to the right sorts of algorithms to get a change in a care plan that helps someone. That, that would be the ideal. And I, I just don't think we're there yet. Will we get there? I hope so. And I bet that we will, just looking at the progress over the last, uh, the last 10 or 15 years and what's gone on with the development of of all sorts of technology and all sorts of artificial uh, intelligence. But I think, you know, the, the blanket application of, say, texting, you know, the idea, let's just text someone a lot and make sure that they take their medicines on time. You know, that use case really, that has not really proved to be true. Or I think it's too oversimplified. I think it doesn't really anticipate the enormous complexity of medicine and medical care and patient experience and the influence of caregivers. And I think there's, um, I, I think people who are in this development work over, uh, I, I think they, in my mind, they um, think that patients want to be communicated with all the time about their health care. I, I would say that that's just, I mean, that's not my personal point of view, but I, I, I really don't want to think about my health care 20 times a day. I, Especially if I, it's, uh, we're reminding you you have a disease. Right. And I think that I would tell you that most of my patients who have, I mean, everyone, at my, the average age in my clinic is probably 85 or 86. Everyone has multiple chronic conditions. Most of those folks have functional impairment. A significant proportion have cognitive impairment. I can tell you that they and their caregivers do not want to think about their infirmities all day long. They really want to be left alone. I mean, um, you know, and but, you know, of course, there's a variety. We, there are people who are 
very focused and do want that information. But I would say that in my experience, in my little corner of the world, that is, that's a minority. So I think thinking about how to apply technology and uh, transfer data or transfer reminders in a way that it does not make people miserable and actually improves care, that's really a hard thing to do. And, and I haven't seen that many great applications of that uh, yet. I think that will get a lot better as the, uh, the algorithms, the back-end algorithms and the artificial intelligence gets better so that, you know, you can provide the minimum touch points to influence care. I think a lot of my patients have concerns about privacy. A lot of them don't want to be infantilized by technology. Um, you know, they don't want to be watched every step they take in the house. I don't think they really want to know anyone to know how often their refrigerator is being opened. And, you know, if you think about the use of technology for people with impairment, you know, we still haven't even figured out how to get people to use things that we absolutely know helps them. So I have a hard time getting, I have a hard time getting people with clear evidence of hearing impairment to wear a hearing aid. And I have a lot of trouble getting people with gait impairments, with trouble walking, to use a cane or a walker, right? That is, those things are technology. They are. There's a tremendous evidence base to prove that they actually help, but getting people to use those things is actually not easy. And part of it is that they don't want to be labeled, they don't want to be seen as being weak or impaired. Um, and then I think the other thing to think about is a labeling effect. You know, if people get told that they need to use these things because they're at risk, that often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, there, is, there were studies done, I think, in the 60s uh, for people who, like in, a, in an employed setting, like I remember, I think there was a study in a steel plant, and this was before there were much in the way of good antihypertensive drugs, and they just took everyone's blood pressure, they found all the people who were hypertensive, and they told half of the people who they found to be hypertensive that they were hypertensive, and they didn't tell the other half. The half that were told and were thus labeled after that had much higher rates of absenteeism from work, much higher rates of visits to doctors. You know, so there, you know, it's, labeling people is not always an innocent exercise um, as well. Um, you know, that said, I think there, there's a, a vast opportunity to develop good technology. And, and you know, just thinking about folks, say, in older adults who are in, functionally impaired, you know, thinking about how can we use technology to reduce social isolation or to help augment treatments for depression or, um, you know, create, uh, you know, use data to inform health systems that people are at social risk and should be enrolled in, say, food assistance programs or Meals on Wheels or, or things uh, like that. I think there's a vast opportunity in terms of making uh, home medication delivery more efficient and better, uh, and, and probably lots of ways that we haven't really thought through yet or developed the best, best methods yet to think about how to improve medication adherence. But that is not a simple nut to crack. I think people over, oversimplify that. Um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, vast opportunities to think about using technology for uh, home safety 
kinds of applications. I think when we talked last time, I, I dreamed up an app where you would have a drone with a camera go through someone's house and do a home safety assessment or take the recording so that an occupational therapist could just view the recording, view the video on that home and make home safety recommendations and, you know, amplify the ability of an occupational therapist to do more evaluations and make more homes safer. Um, you know, when we were in Boston, we talked a bit about the little robot whose name I'm forgetting now to help with social isolation. That's all, that's all terrific. Um, I think we also talked about, uh, you know, the Alexa app for folks with dementia who have certain kinds of behaviors like repeating themselves, which tends to drive caregivers completely bonkers. You know, could Alexa substitute for a spouse in responding to all of the repeated messages that a demented person will speak each day? You know, those are those are things where I think technology can really help. And obviously, there there are other other opportunities that I just don't come to mind uh, right now. So, a little skeptical, but hopeful. I'll say. How about skeptical but hopeful, Joe? Oh, I think uh, your your voice is one of reason. Part of the reason I wanted to interview you for, for this show is that uh, I, people will be listening and they'll take back all of those comments and, and hopefully build systems around them that will that will answer them because they're all absolutely on target. We, we have just a couple minutes left, but I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about your life and policy, how it ties in. What uh, kinds of things are you working on in the policy and payment sphere? You talked a little bit about payment earlier, but tell us a little bit about what's going on in that area. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a fascinating area. There's, it's, it's never not entertaining. Um, I would say the two biggest areas that I've been thinking of in terms of policy is work on um, home-based primary care payment mechanisms and then also hospital at home. So... Um, Going back a few years, leaders at the American Academy of Home Care Medicine, uh, you know, basically using sweat equity, developed the independence at home demonstration that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation put on. It was the independence at home demo was actually included in the Affordable Care Act. It was Section 3024 of the ACA. And what that did is it created a demonstration study to test a shared savings model of payment that was targeted at uh, folks who had multiple chronic conditions and functional impairment and evidence of high utilization either through recent hospitalization or a recent stay in a skilled nursing facility or a recent receive, having recently received an episode of skilled home health care. Uh, and the clinical delivery model was really focused on home-based care. Uh, that has turned out to be among the most successful, if not the most successful demo that CMMI has done. In the first year of the demo, the average savings across all the participants in the demonstration was about $3,000 per beneficiary, and that was pretty tremendous. Uh, the, the payment mechanism that was being tested was a shared savings mechanism, that is, the practice was responsible for a population. And if the practice uh, in year one over year zero saved money, that they would be eligible for shared savings. 
the first 5% of the savings was, you know, off the top that went straight back to Medicare. So Medicare realized 5% savings right off the top. And then beyond the 5% shared savings threshold, the practice got back 80% of the savings and CMS got back the remaining 20% of the savings. So basically you create a mechanism for practices where uh, making, uh, where where sustaining a practice financially is difficult using typical evaluation and management codes. By creating a shared savings mechanism, these practices were able to accrue capital to invest in the kinds of care delivery processes that would actually reduce costs for the highest need, high cost patient. Uh, so that demo has been successful. We've been able to get it extended and then leaders of the um, American Academy of Home Care Medicine, in collaboration with other advocacy groups, have been working with CMS to try and turn that into a, you know, a, a Medicare benefit, or to try and figure out ways for CMMI and CMS and HHS to create uh, payment approaches that would replicate that in the current healthcare landscape. And so, you know, I, I there have been other leaders there who have really been tremendous. Uh, Eric DeYoung at the Washington Hospital Center, uh, Tom Cornwell from Chicago, Bruce Kenosian from Penn, and George Toller and Peter Bowling as well. So, just, I mean, just tremendous, uh, brilliant efforts on their part to push that forward. And then the other main area I've been working on for policy has been trying to... Um, with colleagues work on developing uh, payment mechanisms for hospital at home in fee-for-service Medicare, uh, and also thinking about regulatory mechanisms that could improve it in other spheres of the health system. So about so under MACRA, uh, the Medicare and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, which um, ended the sustainable growth rate and brought in the MIPS program and value-based care, in that bill was included something called the PTAC, which is the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which provided a mechanism for pretty much anyone to propose a new payment model to HHS, to Health and Human Services. The new payment model had to be physician-focused, but it was basically an opportunity for anyone to come in and propose an alternative payment model, something new that Medicare hadn't done in terms of payment to improve quality and reduce costs. So um, Al Sue, my colleague at Mount Sinai, led us in an effort to develop that alternative payment model. We submitted it to the PTAC last spring, the spring of 17, 2017. And actually, uh, after a lot of effort, uh, a year ago tomorrow, there was an open hearing at HHS, and the PTAC approved our proposed payment model for hospital at home. It's basically a 30-day a bundled payment approach that would cover the acute hospital at home plus 30 days of, of post-acute care, uh, and recommended to the secretary to implement that. And it was actually the first time the PTAC approved a proposal for um, full implementation. Um, it sat in HHS for a while because, as you know, we had uh, a change in uh, leadership at HHS. And then most recently, uh, the secretary responded to our proposal and a bunch of other proposals and for our proposal recommended that uh, CMS and CMMI, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Innovation Center talk to us about 
developing payment mechanisms for hospital at home because they are interested in that. And those sorts of discussions are now are now ongoing. And we, we think there is an interest at the federal level to try and find mechanisms to create payment approaches for hospital at home. But time will tell. And, you know, these things do take time. Well, it's wonderful to catch up with you today and, and hear about your uh your approach to changing the world. We again, we we share a, a common interest in in moving care from the hospital into the home. It's been terrific to get your perspective. Anything that I should have asked that I didn't, or anything else that you want to uh, impart to the listeners? No, I think uh, I think that's uh, that covers it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you uh, in the near future. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks for me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager, for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.